I did not become a rabbi because I wanted to change the world. I, I really saw it more from a pastoral point of view. Um, my commitment to social justice and to racial equality really evolved over time. It, it is a result of seeing things that are just happening in the world where I just felt I could not remain silent. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Hello, John. Hi, Kiva. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Well, welcome everyone to our Race to Social Justice podcast series. I am Kiva White, the black guy, as you can see. And I am John Kepner. I'm the white guy. And Kiva and I share love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepter, but more importantly, K for knowledge, what we try to impart in these podcasts. It's what Kiva calls the K factor. Yes, the K factor. Knowledge is power. And not only that, when we have these conversations, knowledge is necessary. So we really appreciate you all tuning in uh, to this podcast. And the goal of our podcast is really to promote racial and social equity through uh, justice, through honest and even sometimes difficult dialogue, what we and John have dubbed courageous conversations. And uh, John and I have found over the years that engaging in these deep uh, discussions have really enhanced our level of understanding around issues of racism and a wide range of other forms of social inequity and our own personal responsibilities to really uh, be change agents and allies in, in that regard. And it has led us to really invite uh, guests to share their honest experiences and learnings uh, around this topic. And we hope that the conversations will help our listeners and even our guests as we all kind of put on our shoes and, and our sneakers and tie them up strong and, and continue this race in our personal journeys towards social justice. So with that, John, who are, who are our guests today? Well, Kiva, we have two guests today. We're going to do yeah. a tag team, sort of a tag team. And um, let me like first int introduce uh, Rabbi Greg Marks, who is the senior rabbi at Congregation Bethor in Horsham, Pennsylvania, not far from, from where I live. And uh, I have had the uh, pleasure of, uh, like I see my cardiologist every six months, I see Greg at least once a year uh, because he visits our Episcopal parish where I go to church every year and um, and speaks to us both at our service and then at our adult class and uh, he is a he sells the place out he's the most popular uh, visiting uh, dignitary that we have every year uh, and and for good reason um, uh, he is uh, his, his uh, uh, sermons to us are rooted in scripture uh, and they're always very powerful. And he does it with a flair. He's uh, on the side. He's a stand-up comic. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I thought it would be great to match him today with uh, my longtime friend and partner, almost 50 years. Uh, we've, we've been friends, Fred Strober, who's a senior real estate attorney at the law firm where I practiced for 22 years, uh, Saul Ewing. It's got a different name now. You can correct me, Fred. Um, and um, uh, I, uh, Fred recently, and he'll tell you about this, recently received uh, the Learned Hand Award uh, mm. from the American Jewish Committee um, for his work in um, uh, 
uh, in the area we're talking about today, uh, discrimination. Uh, and uh, and uh, his remarks at the end were just so moving to me and it sort of coincided with my thinking about inviting Greg that I thought, why don't we try the two of them together? Mm -hmm. So that's the genesis of this. And why don't you kick it off, Kiva? Sure, sure. So let's go ahead and start with you, Greg. Can you tell us about uh, your growing up years? You know, we always like to dig back and get a little personal history. Tell us a little bit about your mom, your dad, siblings, early childhood experiences. What was it like growing up as Greg Strober? Oh, I, actually, I'm Greg, Greg Marks. I'm sorry, <laughs> Greg Marks. Yep, you're right. That's okay. Well, let's let me I'll, I'll nice. begin by, by by telling my name. My name is Greg Marks. Um, I'm a, the senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Orr. I grew up in, uh, actually, I bounced around a fair amount when I was a kid. I lived in New York. I lived in California. Uh, ended up living in Miami Beach. Um, my father was a television writer, um, and he worked for Jackie Gleason for uh, for 20 years. Uh, he wrote The Honeymooners. So if, for those of you, you have to be of a certain age to appreciate The Honeymooners. So my father wrote those. Um, and uh, if you look at the credits, which in my opinion is the most important part of the show, uh, you'll see my father on the scroll. And so we bounced around based upon his his writing works. Um, and so uh, I so my my childhood was um, uh, kind of uh, dramatic. You know, I would you know, Jackie Gleason would come over to our house and Art Carney would come over to our house. And I was a little kid. Uh, I will tell you one of my favorite memories. My father was out with uh, with a comedian. Uh, his name was Frank Gorshin, and he was a great uh, um, uh, mimic. Um, and a great comedian, but his claim to fame for me when I was a little kid was he was the Riddler in the Batman episode. Uh, and uh, one night uh, my father said, listen, you're going to have to come home and meet my son. So my father comes into my room, wakes me up, and there is the Riddler standing over rest, my bed. No, no, he wasn't, you know, he was out <laughs> having just dinner, but, but it was like, I, I, I just have this moment. So you ever have those moments where you're just like starstruck and, and there it is. So, so that's that's a piece of it. I, I think also that's germane to this conversation is uh, my mother, still alive, is 96 years old, um, and she was born in London, England, um, and survived uh, the Blitz during uh, World War II. Um, and the most traumatic part for her was kind of growing up during uh, the rise of uh, National Socialism and Fascism. Um, and there was a fellow by the name of Oswald Mosley, who was a Hitler wannabe in mm -hmm. England. Um, and so my mother was grew up in a time where she was traumatized by by anti-Semitism and hate and ostracization. Um, and, uh, she, you know, they say it's very hard to be raised by a survivor of the Holocaust. Now, my mother was not, thankfully, a survivor of the Holocaust. She was just on the other side of the English Channel. But it had a profound impact on her and on my identity um, as a human being, as someone committed to social justice, and as a Jew. So that's a little bit of, uh, of my childhood. And uh, mm -hmm. I ended up going off to college and going to rabbinical school and uh, fast forward, here I am. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, The Honeymooners was one of my favorite shows. I'm 57, so I'm I, I, was, I grew up in a, a little bit of that era. And I just, I just thought the, sh the show was just, <laughs> phenomenal in terms of humor and just keeping keeping um laughter in our society so thank you so much 
Greg Marks for sharing. Thank Peace you. <laughs> now, Fred, what about you? Same question. Uh, well, um, uh, two things. One, first of all, I should tell you, Rabbi, that um, it's not only John, but a number of people in his congregation have asked me if I know you and have always spoken about um, the sermon that you give annually at, at uh, the church. And so um, I've heard of you from, um, uh, over the years um, that, that way. And John, you should also know that the partners have voted to rename the firm Saul Ewing, period. <laughs> that's it. Oh. So, but that's not supposed to be out yet, but this, won't, this our podcast won't be <clears throat> won't right. be issued until after the, the word is out. Right. Um, I come from, I, I, I was born in um, uh, the far outreaches of New York City in a place called Far Rockaway, New York. That's on the ocean in New York. Um, in, a, in a very, uh, essentially a lower middle class neighborhood. <clears throat> My father, who was born in Brooklyn, was a great athlete. I didn't hear this from him. I've heard it from other people who saw him play. Um, and um, he was a, a particularly a great baseball player. He wanted to be a major league ball player um, and, uh, and was finally um, actually put into the, um, came through the St. Louis Cardinals farm organization um, and <clears throat> dropped out of high school to play um, semi-pro ball to work for his father if they needed to during the depression. And lo and behold, in, on, in May, 1941, he was drafted into the army, he was about, um, he was not, he was 24 years old. Um, he served um, as an amphibious assault engineer in World War II and had either the claim or, um, or you can say, or the hardship of actually participating in all four amphibious assaults um, that the American army launched in North Africa, Sicily, Italy, and on Utah Beach. Um, he was then became a combat engineer, went through um, Europe and, um, and was wounded, fairly severely wounded, but not so severely that he had to go home on New Year's Eve and uh, the Battle of the Bulge, uh, December 31st, 1944. And then in April 1945, he had either the good or the bad fortune of liberating the Nordhaus, part of the, of the units that liberated the Nordhausen. Um, slave labor camp in Germany. This was only two weeks before the war ended. Um, he had spent so much time in the service overseas and in combat that he was literally, literally the first group of soldiers sent home. Uh, they were sent home on VE day um, and they had spent so much time in the service. Um, unfortunately, um, he is, uh, was a person who suffered from PTSD the rest of his life um, and sometimes severely um, particularly um, when I was growing up as a very young boy from my ages, maybe from four to 11 or 12, um, he and, uh, needed to be um, hospitalized several times um, um, for, um, for his problems. My mother, who was born in Brooklyn, um, was raised in Jerusalem, in the family of uh, a Jerusalem family that had settled in Jerusalem in 1809. It's really one of the first Lithuanian Russian families to settle in Jerusalem. Um, and um, she um, came up to this country in 1945. She was the youngest of 12 children and had a sister who lived in Brooklyn. She visited her sister and lo and behold, her sister was married to my father's brother. My father had just been back from the war. He met my mother and, uh, and got married. Um, I think she knew about some of his problems and was warned about it, but you know, with, um, she was a very loving person. And, um, and, um, and so during my childhood, 
I was raised, they were not. Um, my father came back from the war sort of as an agnostic. Um, so I was not raised a, in, a, in a particularly religious household. However, um, I had a, a lot of Israeli influence on me because of my mother's family. And my parents, because of the neighborhood we lived in, sent me to, Greg, to an Orthodox Hebrew school where I went to school five days a week and got a very, very traditional Orthodox, Orthodox education. Um, I went to a public school in Far Rockaway, and I mention this because it's part of the story I would like to tell, um, um, in a, uh, a public school that actually um, graduated um, is at least one, if not three, I think it, it could be three, Nobel Prize winners in science. One of them was Richard Feynman, who you may have heard of the famous 20th century physicist um, who lived in the neighborhood. So it was an elementary school um, that was predominantly Jewish, um, the, um, although the neighborhood was Jewish and Irish for the most part when I was a young boy. Almost all of the Irish kids went to parochial school. So in my very first years in grammar school, the class was almost entirely Jewish. There were a couple of non-Jewish um, kids, including two Asians. And there was a small African, um, African-American community not far from where I grew up. And so there were several, not many, but at least at the beginning of my grammar school days, there were several African-American children in our school um, and um, in the time between first and fourth grade, maybe one or two in my class. Um, I'll stop there. Maybe you want to ask more questions. But then when I was in fourth and fifth grade, there was a significant thing that happened to my school and to me that very much, I believe, has to do with um, with um, what you're trying to get out. And, you know, we're discussing in the podcast today, and that is um, uh, how I was introduced in some in some ways um, to diversity and um, inclusion and, and actually to, to equity. And I can explain that. Okay, we'll come back to that for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Greg, so tell us a little bit about, a little more about why you became a rabbi and um, how um, you approach as a rabbi, how you approach the issues of uh, uh, racial equity and, and um, anti-Semitism. Uh, wow, John, that's a that's a big that's a big question. Um, so uh, I would say that I became a rabbi primarily because I saw the rabbi. In fact, I was going. I'm talking to a, a number of lawyers here. I was going to go to law school, and I also at the same time when I was graduating from college applied to rabbinical school because I really wasn't sure I was going to be a social worker. I really wasn't sure what direction I was going to go. Not uncommon for a kid graduating from college. Um, and when I went to rabbinical school, uh, my interview was just so exciting to me. And they talked to me about the opportunities of being a rabbi. Um, I, I decided to, to pursue that path because the rabbinate is, uh, affords me a unique opportunity to do things I love, you know, to counsel people, to be with people in moments of joy and sorrow, to to uh, to be politically engaged, to motivate a congregation. Uh, I would say that, you know, it, uh, unlike my uh, my Christian colleagues who will say I received a calling from God, this was not a, a call from on high. This really came from deep within myself in terms of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to accomplish uh, with my life. 
Um, I love Jewish values and tradition. Um, I love sacred texts and studying them and analyzing them. And John, you were very kind in your words. So uh, that really motivated my uh, decision to become uh, a rabbi. One other piece that is, is connected to my childhood and that is that my father, um, when he was 44 years old, uh, became uh, gravely ill, never really fully recovered, um, had surgery, was in and out of nursing homes until he mm -hmm. finally died at the age of 50. Um, and the synagogue became a place for me of tremendous support. Uh, love and moral encouragement. And uh, the rabbi kind of took me under his wing. Um, and I thought to myself when I was in college, remembering back on those days, um, what a nice thing to do for a living, you know, to try to, to nourish uh, and support uh, a young kid who is, uh, his family was literally falling apart. Um, so, uh, so that's a little bit of the story uh, of me as a rabbi. Um, I would say that my, my journey on social justice evolved. Um, I did not become a rabbi because I wanted to change the world. I, I really saw it more from a pastoral point of view. Um, my commitment to social justice and to racial equality really evolved over time. Um, and I think um, it, 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 it is a result of seeing things that are just happening in the world where I just felt I could not remain silent. Uh, mm. And uh, it's a very dear friend of mine. And I would say it's been one of the most transformative relationships I've ever had. In fact, he was over at my house last night, um, is, is Reverend Charles Kwan of the Bethlehem Baptist Church. I knew Church. that's what you were going to say. And, and Charles and I, um, you know, when we first met, you know, he would talk to me about racism and he would talk to me about the struggles of his, uh, of his kids and his teenagers in the, in the church, uh, driving a car that might be, uh, too nice for what the, you know, the police would expect. And they would just systematically and regularly get pulled over, often for doing nothing. And he would say, you know, he called it driving while black. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's something that I never experienced. That's something that my children, thankfully, never experienced. And so he raised my awareness in terms of the plight and the struggles, not only, you know, in a systematic way, but also in a very personal way. Um, and, and that was very important to me uh, in my development. And on the same side, I would talk to Charles about anti-Semitism and he would, you know, he obviously, when we first met, he really didn't get it. He would say, what are you talking about? He said, I see the economic levels that your community is living in. What, what does anti-Semitism mean? And I, I explained to him, you know, that, you know, our history, uh, I would say that, you know, there's, a, there's a level of anxiety that, that, persists within the Jewish community. I feel it. Most Jews feel it. Um, my mother was raised with it. She never knew when, you know, when someone could come knocking on her door. And I will quote one of my favorite comedians, John Stewart, who is very out there as a Jew. He once said, and just in passing, he said, I'm a Jew. I always keep a bag packed. And, and and what does that mean? You know, it, it means, you know, you you, you want to be alert. You, you want to be aware of what is happening politically and socially and on the streets of the country, because our history has taught us that things can change dramatically and very quickly. Um, 
ask the Jews of, of Germany or, you know, during the Crusades or whatnot. Um, and so he helped appreciate that plight and that level of anxiety. So antisemitism and racism, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit later, um, are similar um, and profoundly different at the same time. So that, yeah. that, that was my that was my experience. You know, I, I thank you so much for sharing that, Greg, because last night uh, on a, a previous podcast, we were talking about um, the oppression, the oppressive nature of being disabled, right? And one of the things that I raised is that there's, there's a sense of what we call, in social work, we call it psychological trauma and racial, race-based trauma, you know, meaning that there's, you know, there's experiences that because of, of, of your race uh, and your color, your skin color that you experience that are traumatic in nature and the gentleman that you were talking about having a discussion around his kids driving, you know, a nice car and stuff like that. I still, <laughs> I'm 57 and I still go through that. Uh, I went to uh, a predominantly uh, all white high school in Queens Village. I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens. So this is a little bit what Fred was talking about. Um, um, I'm growing up in Rock, Far Rockaway. I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, which is not too far from Far Rockaway. And my brother currently lives there now. Uh, but I went to a predominantly white school. And then in college, I went to the college at New Paltz, which is upstate New York and uh, in the Adirondack. And so coming home on the, on the uh, New York uh, State Thruway, I would always get, without fail, driving from New Paltz to New York City. I had a Honda Accord and my windows were slightly tinted. I would, I'm here, I'm a college student, but I would without fail get stopped every trip. And so the psychological trauma and the race-based trauma, it just, it, it, it really permeates and sticks with you. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that, sharing that story about your mother and, and, and um, um, the gentleman that um, is the reverend and his children experience, because this is what this is all about. Having conversations where we can see, despite our differences, there's commonality. Thank you. So, Thank you, Kiva. Let's let's pick up on that life experience theme. And Fred, you were going to talk about fourth and fifth grade. Well, I you know it's um, because I've had really what what I might might say is a roller coaster ride with respect mm. to race relations in some way. And um, so I think I've explained that the school I went to. And by the way, uh, by the way, uh, Kiva, the Jamaica bus lines connected Far Rockaway and, and South Jamaica. Yeah. If you remember, that's that right. New York, bus. Yeah, remember, 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 remember they they, they no longer there. The New York City right. took over. They used right, to right, they used right. to run straight through Guy uh, New York Boulevard. We used to call right, New York Boulevard. New York Boulevard. Now it's Guy yeah. Brewer Boulevard. Remember it well. No. So I, I think I explained that the, the class I, uh, I was in and the school I was in was predominantly white and Jewish. And then something happened in around 1958, I suppose. Um, it's when New York City uh, expanded its um, low-income housing and what we would then call projects and <clears throat> built one um, very close to my elementary school in Far Rockaway. And suddenly um, when I was in fourth, fifth and sixth grade, there was an influx, if you call it that, of African-American and Hispanic, mostly uh, kids who were born in Puerto Rico, whose parents had been born in Puerto Rico, who suddenly came to the school. And, um, and were, and I don't know exactly how this was done, but they were sort of spread out among all the classes. 
And so our class, which had maybe 28 or 30 students in it, suddenly grew to 35 or so. And we had um, African-American students who primarily came, had come up recently from the South. Mm. Now, I don't mean to be inappropriate by saying this at all, but think of the environment in which they found themselves. I mean, they were in classrooms now with kids who were taught by very skilled teachers. The New York City public school system, Keith, I think you recognize was one of, was probably the great okay. yep. urban, urban educational system in the world for many years. It educated so many immigrants and so many children who went on to stellar, stellar lives. Okay. And, um, and these students, you know, were certainly not reading at our grade level. They certainly did not have the skills. I don't know what, um, you know, they may very well have had the aptitude, but they had not had the experience and the skills. And each of us in the classroom was buddied up with one of the students who had come in. And mm. that gave me this tremendous feeling of satisfaction that I was helping a student. I remember his name, I won't mention it. I remember he'd come up from Georgia. And, um, and, I, and I really felt good about it. I felt like we were, had been doing something. I didn't think about it overall in a racial context, but certainly these kids were different than we were. And we got along, we got along very well. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and, and we got to learn a lot about different cultures. Mm -hmm. And I felt very privileged by that. Mm. Fast forward a little bit to my high school days, um, where my high school was larger. It was, it had a, and by then the, the, um, uh, the neighborhood maybe was maybe 20% African-American or something like that. So it was, it, the high school was much more diverse than the public school it started out as. And I was um, very active um, in um, student government and in human re and something called the Human Relations Club. And I got a job, and I was very lucky. I got a job at a country club not far from where I lived. And for my end of my junior high school years and all through my high school years, I was a caddy. Mm. I was a caddy in a neighborhood that was primarily Italian, but had a very good-sized African-American <clears throat> neighborhood in it. Plus, the, the, um, the low-income housing that I just discussed was really just over the New York City line. So... There were tons of African-American teenagers in the neighborhood. There wasn't one African-American caddy. Mm. And while I was caddying, although I heard, and, and by the way, I was one of maybe three Jewish caddies. And, um, and I heard some anti-Semitic remarks. Um, I sort of let them, I, I, I didn't let them get to me too much. I heard a lot of racism in the caddy yard. And I, and I may have mentioned things to my friends, but I certainly didn't call anyone out on it. And, um, and then I, to, you know, not only was I able to make money and save for college, but then I really lucked out and I won a caddy scholarship to go to Penn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, think about how lucky and privileged I was. And, Looking back at it as part of my law firm's DEI initiative and being able to talk about our lives, I got the thinking about when we talk about white privilege, I think to myself, that was white privilege. And think mm -hmm. of the opportunity that I had not only to work and make a living and save to college, but to get a scholarship when there was not one African-American kid 
my age who was given that same opportunity. Yeah. And I, I frankly, I feel guilty about it. And um, it's not a matter of coming to terms with it or not coming to terms with it, but I, I, it, it, it has emphasized to me what it is to be white privileged. Yeah. I always took pride in what I did. I worked hard. I got up 5.30 in the morning. I carried two bags on my back until three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. I came home dog tired and did it day after day after day, six days a week. And then I earned that scholarship. I thought that was all, I was just so proud of it. And now I look back at it, feeling actually somewhat badly about being given that opportunity when that opportunity was denied to so many people my age. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, um, um, as I say, it's, for me, it's almost been a roller coaster uh, ride. Um, in college, I had um, any number of um, what, what call it inter interactions, experiences. It was the time of the um, a black power movement. There were um, there was there was a black small Black Panther um, chapter um, at Penn. There were certainly African American students who were vocal. I worked at a settlement house um, at 26 and Lombard once. This called University Settlements as um, as a as a summer job um, and worked um, in a neighborhood that had a lot of racial tension in it. Um, and worked with a number of African-American um, students, mainly from Temple, and who, who frankly shut me out of some of their conversations. And I felt badly about that, but it really made me think about um, my role and my experiences and what, what maybe I could do um, to, it's not a matter of making things better. I mean, this was, we're talking about the 60s here, and you know, I don't need to repeat what the 60s was all about in terms of race relations or what had gone on in the country. But I really had a lot, spent a lot of time thinking about it and, um, and in many ways criticizing myself um, for not doing what I think was maybe the best thing I could have done in the circumstances. I, I realized I was all 15, 16 years old when this happened. Mm -hmm. And I know that I mentioned it to some people. Isn't it funny that there are no um, kids here working as caddies? But it wasn't until I had left as a, as a caddy, was, I think I was a senior in high school maybe, when, it, when the when the club actually um, and the caddy you know, the caddy master hired the first African American caddy, so it's um it's something I've had to deal with um, um, throughout um, my life. And then of course we can talk about you know you know more of what my experience has been you know in my professional and life in my life with yeah, Jewish communal organizations. We're going to uh, cover that professional side and let that let's let's switch over now back to Greg and discuss anti-Semitism from a couple of perspectives. You're from a professional perspective as a, as a rabbi, uh, but also um, what's going on in the country, uh, the violence uh, that seems to have emerged and whether that's always been there, we're just hearing more about it. Uh, how, how do you approach this subject with your congregation and outside of the congregation in your own life? Um, well, John, anti-Semitism has, in my professional life, never been higher and never been more terrifying. Um, sadly, I can say that we are in um, a very troubling time because we are um, literally um, from the radical left as well as the radical right being targeted um, for different reasons and from different, you know, different political points of view. 
Um, but I think it's it, it's the unique plight of the Jewish community. Um, I remember when I was a kid, there was a song uh, by Tom Lehrer uh, called National Brotherhood Week. And in that song, it's like the Catholics hate the Protestants and the Protestants hate the Catholics. And to get to the end, everybody hates the Jews. Right. Mm -hmm. But on National Brotherhood Week, it's that it's 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 a humorous song that he wrote. I, I'm sure the older uh, individuals, Kiva, it's probably uh, beyond your time. But um, so so for me, um, as a friend of mine once said, He's, and he uh, and I will quote him. He said, I fear the lethality of the right and the ubiquity of the left. Mm. And what he meant by that was he said, he said, we have armed guards at our at our synagogue. Now, I've been a rabbi for 37 years. Um, armed guards is something new and it, it is it is necessary because while everyone will talk about Pittsburgh and and the, and the massacres of uh, of eleven worshippers, um, it is a real it is a real threat, um, and 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 we have to as a synagogue take it seriously. Um, one of the most profound moments in my rabbinate was uh, that that massacre took place on a Saturday morning, mm -hmm. and and I didn't know about it until Saturday afternoon. And we had Sunday school the next morning. And I thought to myself, what is, are, are people going to bring their children to Sunday school? What's that going to look like? Are they going to stay at home because they want to protect their children? And I saw parents getting out of the car, holding their little children's hands and walking to synagogue and I, I started to weep internally because I thought this is a statement of courage and faith and resilience. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some who stay away. I, I will be honest. There are some who will think twice about coming to services um, and being in a large group. Um, uh, my wife grew up in a small Jewish community, and we had a, a, a practice called Tashlich, where you take breadcrumbs in your pocket and spread them out on the water to symbolize the, the shedding of your sins, the secret sins that you carry. And uh, someone said to her, I think she must have been no more than 11 years old. She said, don't, don't go together as a large group. Spread out a little bit, because if someone attacks us, they won't kill us all. They'll only get some of us. That's the kind of mentality uh, that we deal with. Um, and, uh, you know, with, 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 with you know, I, I know we're not talking politics, but there are big lies out there. Uh, conspiracy theories uh, that, are, that are quoted by political leaders today, members of Congress who talk about pedophilia and uh, and uh, and conspiracy theories um, and 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 it takes hold and it is it is terrifying at the same time on the left on the radical left uh, Jews are criticized you know we're seen as um, uh, having white privilege um, and we're, we're seen as not being, you know, you were, you were, you were referencing that Fred growing up um, and, uh, you know, ha having opportunities, you know, we're seen as, as white by the left and not white by the right. We, we, we're kind of in between those, those two worlds. And, uh, and if you, and if, 
you know, if you're looking for a reason to, to, to ostracize and alienate the Jewish community on the radical left and the radical right, there are ample reasons. And it, it, gives, it gives me pause. It saddens me. I will tell you that it does not weaken my faith. It does not weaken my resolve. But sometimes it takes uh, the wind out of my sails. Um, and I, I have on numerous occasions been on the pulpit um, and I look at someone walking into the sanctuary and I have to ask myself, is this person a threat? Um, mm. I never had to do that uh, 20 years ago. Wow. How, did, how does that translate into the way you deal with this issue with your congregation? I talk about it. I talk about it. I talk about it. I help them understand and appreciate uh, the challenges. Um, and I try to give them uh, moral support to not cease being Jewish. I, there was a, there was a, a mm. Jewish philosopher, his name was Emil Fackenheim. And I will be brief, but Emil Fackenheim um, wrote a book following the Holocaust. And he said, there are 613 commandments that Jews are supposed to follow. Mm. Uh, these emanate from Mount Sinai, right? If you know your Bible, right? Exodus chapter 20. Mm -hmm. God commands the Jewish people to do these 613 things. And Emil Fackenheim said, there is now a 614th commandment. And that does not come from the top of the mountaintop. It comes from the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And mm -hmm. he said, that commandment is, don't give Hitler a posthumous victory. Don't walk away. Don't run and hide. Because even if you do, you're a Jew. And they will find you if they're coming for you. He said, live proudly, resolutely, and faithfully as a Jew. And Fackenheim echoes in my consciousness. And I, while I don't always quote Fackenheim, that 614th command, com commandment to be um, mm. speaks to me. Um, and I, and I, and I would, I would say that, you know, and then I'll, 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 I'll turn it, I'll turn it over to Fred. Um, I think that's unique to the Jewish community. Uh, as, as difficult as things are, um, and, and lots of churches and schools have security concerns, and we've seen the world change uh, from Sandy Hook on, um, I, I, I think we're always aware of what the threats are and the challenges, and we need to be conscious of that. So let me ask, so when in the aftermath of these like hate crimes, like I know, I know John alluded to like, what do you say? I'm more, I'm more uh, interested in like, what's the process of healing? Um, you know, going through like this traumatic, you know, going through this traumatic experience because there's this sense of what we call collective grief, and seeing these type of things be bestowed on, you know, Jews, African American, Asians. There's in that in those communities, it's this collective grief of of just hurt and harm and fear. How do you all begin to process that as a community to get through? Well, you know, uh, you know, Fred was talking about his father having post-traumatic stress syndrome. I think, I, I, you know, I think the Jews have an inherited post-traumatic stress syndrome. I think African-Americans do as well. You know, whether or not you've experienced a racist event, you know what was done to your ancestors. You know how you are perceived and you don't have to do anything to deserve it. It just is. And I think Jews recognize that as well. And I think we, we, we have to bear it. 
um, and we have to provide. I mean, one of the things that I love about coming into synagogue, and, and I've said this on numerous occasions, it's our little cocoon. It's our little. It's our little safe place um, where people can come and be, and they while they're they 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 can express their fears and their concerns and their challenges. Um, and they don't have to worry about how they're being perceived. They don't have to worry about, well, is this person an anti-Semite? What do they think? I mean, I have members of my Jewish community. I'll be honest with you. And they will say, scratch the most charming and lovely Christian white man, and you will find an anti-Semite underneath them. Same thing, you know, scratch, you know, scratch, and you'll find a racist. You'll find whatever, a homophobe. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. Um, but there, but there is, there is that sense of fear and that level of anxiety in many in my Jewish community. And I think the only thing we can do is talk about it, uh, try to provide a safe environment for it. Um, but it, but it's real. Um, one of the yeah. things that I, I would, I want to share with you, and I've been, I, I've been wrestling with this uh, a lot. You know, hate is hate, but it mm -hmm. often takes different forms. Yeah. And this is kind of the conversations I've had with Pastor Kwan. Um, I think inherent in, in racism is this notion why you can't why you why you couldn't have an African American caddy, because whites are somehow superior. So whites mm -hmm. are somehow smarter, you know, better gene pool, fill in the blank, that whites are better than African Americans. Antisemitism takes a different tone. It's almost the opposite. It's somehow this fear that there's this secret cabal of Jews manipulating the media, manipulating the news, manipulating politics. I mean, when you look at the propaganda that came out uh, during World War II and you see on the hard right today, it's mm. the Jew as the octopus with the tentacles everywhere kind of controlling and manipulating and destroying and perverting and subverting. It's the notion that almost Jews are some sort of super race, um, smarter, like some, someone has, someone has said to a lawyer, a friend of mine, he said, oh, I want to get myself a Jew lawyer. I want to get myself a Jew doctor. And someone would say, oh, that's wonderful. You want a Jewish lawyer, a Jewish accountant. What they're really saying is, I want someone who knows how to manipulate the system. I want someone who knows how to kind of get things done and maybe not do it morally. Um, and, and that is, um, I think, a, an element of anti-Semitism, which is profoundly different than, than racism. Although I, yeah, although I think there is a similarity common, there. Mm -hmm. There's a common factor right, here that the, the public narrative, which has been accentuated by the Internet, as you alluded to, uh, impacts the way white people look at Jews and African-Americans and anybody different. Yeah. It, 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 and you, you experience it from birth constantly. And, and, um, and I, I see that impacting uh, white people, you know, uh, affecting the way white people view things. And maybe scratching, you know, you'd scratch the surface and that, but, but there's, a re there's a reason why that happens, a societal reason why that happens. And then the, uh, the responsibility of white people is to, is to, to go beyond that, you know, go beyond that, and and I appreciate people for people, and right. and 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 to your point, that one of the reasons I come to St. Thomas is because I sure. want to I want to tear down those sure. walls, absolutely, and, and it is a tremendous credit to the church that you would have a non-Christian 
preach on a Sunday morning, um, but you do because tearing down those walls of isolation and hopefully dispelling some of those misperceptions is part of uh, your core values. Are Sorry, you, Kiva, I interrupted no, you. No, no, this is Go good. Ahead. No, because I think, John, you know, I, I'm really um, in tune to uh, Dr. Barbara Love's work on liberatory consciousness. And so it's a framework for really saying if we're going to liberate our society as individuals, there are four things that we need to start doing so we can get deprogrammed and desocialized into these social narratives. Like for me as an African-American male, just using your word, Greg, that white, white hat, whites have a superior, like they're superior. I, to, to, as, as I sit here today, no one has control over my life, but the almighty. And just using it from a biblical standpoint, God never said to let man have dominion over man. He said, let man take dominion over fish of the sea, fowl of the air and everything that creepeth upon the earth, meaning the bugs and all that. But he never said, let man have dominion over man. That's why slavery didn't work. That's why when the Native Americans were being were, were trying to be enslaved, they was not having it. They was killing them. Because it never, God never gave it that way. So it never, so one thing I, I, I try to uh, um, make myself aware of, and, and this is alluding to um, um, uh, Dr. Barbara Love's liberatory consciousness, is awareness that no one has dominion over my life. And I'm not saying this to be, you know, um, um, you know, conceited or cocky in it. It's just, I've had come to the awareness of that, that no one has, the, the, no one can dominate. So when they use the word dominant coach, I don't like dominant coach. I like to use the word, those who are in power of the systems in our society. It, it's how you reframe all of these narratives. So Dr. Love says, we have to become aware, number one. We have to do our own self-analysis of the information that is out there in the media, number two. We have to become allies in our society to make a change. And then number three, we have to hold people accountable, right? And so it's a whole, it's a whole framework and it's a mindset shift. But, but for me, I'm really, I'm really as a racial equity consultant and an educator in this field, I'm really striving to make sure that I'm aware. I go to other neighborhoods. I, I travel outside of the country. I read wide and I travel wider. And by doing that, it's really... See, allow me to see and have my awareness to know African-Americans, there's not just a root, you know, the movie Roots. We're not just the only ones that's, uh, that uh, experience suffrage. When I watch the boy in the blue and white striped pajamas, I understand exactly, uh, Greg, what you're talking about, about the Holocaust and the experiences of atrocities. Other than that, I only knew about it in the history books and what they taught us in school. But once I saw that movie, I understood and so that's where I think conversation, raising awareness, and most importantly, self-analysis of who you are as an individual and what, how are you contributing to society? Are people walking away from you feeling better or feeling oppressed? And that's kind of like what I try to do every single day. And I God think that's you very important. Good. God bless you for that. That is one of the most beautiful usages of text Kiva I've heard in a long time. Yeah. You know, we don't have dominion. You know, could I make one exception to that point? Yeah, sure. My wife. She has yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna. So we, <laughs> me and my wife, I, I should I'm gonna wear my shirt uh because uh we bought these shirts uh for when we traveled to Martha's Vineyard and it said um 
uh, he is he is smarter or something like it was like he is smarter. And then on hers, he said, yeah, but I am the smart. I, I am. I am the smartest one or something like it's like that. Well, she I, I, I saw one where like I may be the head of the family, but my wife is the neck. neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Similar to that. It's in that vein. It's in that vein. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, sorry for making light. No, of no, that's beautiful. No, point. no. Humor, I, look, I, humor I is warned good. everybody it's about fun. being a stand up comic. Um, uh, Fred, let's go back to you now. I, I want to, um, with, I'd love to you to comment on this, sure. but also your lived experience at our law firm in the early days. Mm. When we were young lawyers, we didn't have any blacks. Mm. We had one or two. You were one of the early uh, Jewish lawyers. We didn't have any women. And I know this is something that you've talked about and, and related also to the Learned Hand yeah. Award. You know, what, what led to that in your life experience? Why, why is well, it such a deep issue for you? And, and how is it translated? It, it, it's, it's a deep issue for me. I mean, starting back, one of the things you mentioned, John, is that um, um, I've written recently about the history of anti-Semitism in, in large law firms across the United States and particularly in Philadelphia. And a lawyer who's starting today would have no way of knowing if he or she is Jewish, that she'd have no chance of getting a job at a large law firm in Philadelphia until about 1968. That's sort of hard to believe. There was a lot of change going on in the country then. I think um, Jewish Catholic relations had become warmer as a result of um, things that happened in the Vatican in the, in the, in the 1960s. Um, and I think just overall, society was beginning to change, but it's hard to believe that um, there was that kind of segregation along religious lines, um, even right through the, uh, almost until 1970. Um, and, um, and, it, and I know in our law firm, and this is not, and this certainly is not um, uh, limited to our law firm, it has been a challenge, not only to recruit, but especially to um, retain African-American lawyers, talented African-American lawyers over the years. John, there are African-American lawyers you and I have worked with who are very talented, who felt that their place was not at the law firm, even though their work was, even though their work may have been excellent. And, um, and that is a challenge I think that we all have to face, that we all have to live up to. And, I, and, and, and my focus um, um, has been, it's, it's, diversity is easy to speak about, I think, I, when I say nothing's easy, and inclusion, but the concept of equity, of making sure that everyone has the same opportunities and are not shut out of those opportunities because of perceptions about their abilities or preconceived notions about what they're able to do based on their race or in any other aspect of them, I think is something that all of us have to um, have to face and have to and have to live up to. The idea of having good mentoring systems, listening, um, uh, being aware of what's around us, um, um, knowing that the path someone else takes may not be the path that I or John or somebody else would have taken 40 and 50 years ago. That's an important thing to understand and all of, and all of us to work with. If, if I can for a second, I just want to, um, there's very little I can add to what Greg had to say um, about anti-Semitism and like his synagogue, we have armed guards um, after, the, um, after the incident in Pittsburgh. We also had parents who may have hesitantly brought their children 
um, to religious school the next day. But I think uh, Greg had hit on it, that there's something in, um, in the Jewish DNA that makes us realize that this has happened before. And one of the ways to fight it is to stand up and let it know that we won't be deterred by it. Mm-hmm. And I think that for almost all of my life, I felt that America writ large protected us. That, um, that given from what we've always known as being the right-wing anti-Semitism and racism, the ultra-right-wing, and what is now, as, as the rabbi has noted, has become a real left-wing phenomenon, right? that notwithstanding people who would spew hate, that we always had institutions that would protect us, our courts, our legislators, our, uh, our journalism, um, et cetera. And but I think what we've seen in the last few years has been an erosion in the strength of those institutions. Attempts to, um, to um, if, if not destroy, at least weaken those institutions. And if we weaken those institutions, I think we Jews feel and for ourselves and for other um, minorities in this country, Asian Americans, African Americans, um, uh, Muslim Americans, that, um, that the protection won't be there. And if the protection that we've known as America um, is not there in the future, then all of us together, I think, need to, um, uh, need to gather. We need to learn about one another. We need to learn what the threats are, and we need to know what kind of action to take to repel it. And, mm-hmm. um, and, that's, um, and uh, that's a lot of what I am doing now in my adult life, and this is not a plug for I'm very active, as some of you know, in an American Jewish committee, where I serve on committees with Muslims, Latino Americans, AJC has always had a very strong relationship with the African American community. And, um, and um, I've just felt that I need to do what I can um, to, to fight anti-Semitism. Um, one of the great privileges in my life, really, um, one of the great honors and privileges is that I've been able to represent the Tree of Life Synagogue in, um, in, its, um, in its construction matters, in its design and construction matters as it rebuilds um, the sanctuary and creates a um, Holocaust memorial and, and rays of light for, um, uh, for the world to see. And, um, and that's what, what, what small personal thing I can do, I think, to express my commitment um, to seeing to it that we do everything we can to erase anti-Semitism and, to, and, and, and hatred and all hatred. Um, because with the tree of life um, as reborn will be, will really be a monument against hate. And, um, and to make sure that we, um, all of us, uh, both individually and communally um, can do something about it. Wow. I, can I add something real quick here, Fred? Uh, and this is for all of us. Uh, so uh, you mentioned earlier that when you were 15, you you were in you were in the midst of earshot or witnessing or hearing what what we call race uh, race talk right and and, and you said you didn't say you didn't. and at age fifteen I you know I didn't I didn't mine was more not vocally mine was more behaviorally I would I would act out 
of my frustrations of, of being um, a victim of racism. Today, I use my voice. And so one of the things that we teach uh, when we do trainings on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is how to, to uh, not offend the offender. Because sometimes I think the fear is, well, I don't want to say something because I may offend them. Well, they are the offender. So we teach how not to offend the offender. And we, we use the three word process. And it's just three simple words. And what you're doing is you're attacking the act, not the person. That was offensive. That is insensitive. That is intolerable. And so saying, at least saying something to the offender is letting him or her know that their behavior, their actions are, is, is just the act is what you're attacking. And I think what, most, what I find in, in my work, most white people won't say anything when they're in the presence of race talk because they don't know, one, they don't know what to say. Two, they are afraid that they may offend someone. Well, you're offending someone who is offensive. And so... Um, you have to do it in a way that you're not attacking the person because most people don't want to lose their jobs. There's a business arrangement that may go sour if you do say something, if you're in the press. But here's what I say to all leaders that are uh, exposed to race talk. Com silence is compliance. Saying nothing is saying a whole lot, especially if the behavior is also witnessed by a person of color and you as a leader, a white leader of an organization, you sit and say nothing and say silent. That can have a, a, a huge, more detrimental effect on the organization uh, as opposed to the offensive uh, statement within itself. So I just wanted to put that out there that I'm, I'm glad to see that you, you mentioned that you are self-aware and doing self-analysis and that's a part of it. And the three word concept allows folks to say something as opposed to saying nothing. That was offensive. And then if it really gets bad and you really need to, to, to touch upon the person, um, then you may need to just say three words, shame on you and just walk away um, because something has to be said because if we don't say something, it's a symbolization or, or uh, implicit uh, communication that the behavior is, is tolerable. Thank you. I just that's, wanted to put that out there. That, that's very good point. And, and Kiva, I should say that some of the training I've gone through is how to react in those situations. And so thank you for, for that. And yep. don't make it personal. Um, That's right. But make the person aware that um, what yeah. he or she has said is offensive and is, right. is, and is, har and, and is harmful. That's um, right. With, you you want to provoke, you want to provoke, do you want to use a conscious, you want to be conscious. When I say you, me, I want to be conscious in my provocation of the unconscious yep. because a person is not aware, but I'm conscious of it. And if I'm conscious and I don't say anything to provoke and, and bring it to their conscious awareness, then I'm just a part of the problem. So, so let me um, try to wrap this up. We could go on another. Yeah, too. But uh, with a couple of things. First, you can see why I love to deal with Kiva, because every time I'm with him, I learn something more. Um, but second, um, the discussion reminded me of uh, the book um, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, Kiva and I read that together, sort of suffered through it together, and we're yeah. going to have a podcast uh, between each other just from passages on that. And, and it, it, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it talks about um, racial inequity 
anti-Semitism and the caste system in, in India. Uh, and it inter intersects all of those things. And, it, and this, this discussion today was really reminiscent of that. And then finally, um, Greg, I wanna give you the last, uh, last word here. Um, before Akiva closes it out. Um, and I, your last uh, sermon at St. Thomas, um, you know, you could look at, okay, you can be educated about these subjects. You can then build awareness, but then what? And, and my recollection of your message was then there's a call to action and you rooted it in scripture. Uh, you could root it in just because it's the right thing to do. But do you want to say anything in, in, in final about, about that whole concept of what we can do about this? What's our Rabbi responsibility? Nachman. Yeah, thanks, John. Rabbi Nachman of Kosover once said that the greatest challenge that we have as human beings is to see the face of God in someone that doesn't look like us. Mm. Right? It's easy to love my neighbor, right, as the Bible says, because the neighbor looks like me. Right. presumably, right? But can I can I see the face of God in someone that prays differently, looks differently, thinks differently? And to me, that is the great challenge of the world. Um, and so for me, that, require, that requires um, a, a consciousness of love that in the end of the day, yes, Kiva, you're 100% right. You got to call somebody out. But in the end of the day, the next step will be then invite them in, right? Can you build a relationship? Can you, can, you, can you sit down and break bread with someone who thinks, prays, and looks differently? And I think that if we can do that, then there's hope. If all we're doing is shouting at each other, and that to me seems to be the culture of our country today, we're just yelling at each other over the internet, and it's so easy to do that, right? Um, you know, because there's no, there's no pain. There's no, you don't see the reaction of the person that you're, you're insulting, but to be able to, to, and I know it sounds elementary, but I think it's important to develop relationships, um, call somebody out and then invite somebody in. Mm. Uh, how about, how about this for a motto? Let's make America dinner again. Again. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How about I this? I love that. How about this? When's the last time you had, I'm talking to the Jews, an African-American over to your house for dinner? For dinner. When's the last time you had someone that didn't look like you over for dinner? Let me just say personally, I am proud of the fact, this is not a, I'm not boasting here, but my son married an African-American woman. Mm -hmm. I have a biracial grandchild. Mm -hmm. our, our family is very diverse. There you go. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it, it strengthens me because we all have different narratives. And yeah. could you have imagined sitting down and having dinner together? Um, that kind of family, that to me is our future. And I, I got plenty of reason to despair, but I also think that there, that, that in the end of the day, love is stronger than hate. And that's what I'm going to hold on to. I love it. Uh, my, my, my uh, thing is you, it's hard to hate in person. Yeah. Hard. It's hard to hate face to face. And so particularly now we have all these devices where hate is, is kind of covert. You know, it's hard to hate. It's hard for me to look somebody in the face and, and call them all. If you can do that, then there's really some soul searching that you have to do 
within yourself, but it's really hard to hate in person. The last thing I would say, Greg, is I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm in a, a multi, a multi-ethnic uh, family too. My wife is Latina. And every time we have Christmas or Thanksgiving, I just sit and I just really um, smile on the inside because, you know, despite our differences, when you mix the two together, it's nothing but beauty that comes out of it. Nothing but beauty that comes out of it. So I think um, that's the message that uh, we're trying to get across in these podcasts is that it doesn't matter what our differences are. We're all, you know, we can come together under the auspices of, of uh, love as our theme would be just so, so uh, tremendous. Because I want my girls to grow up in a world where, you know, they are seen for uh, not who they are for the color of their skin, but just for what they bring to society. So Thanks. Yeah, Thanks. this was great. This was great. Was Thank terrific. you, Greg and Fred, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all our listeners and all of our viewers for joining us on another Race to Social Justice. Please subscribe and join us again for another Courageous Conversation as we all continue to strengthen and tie up our shoes and get our bottle of water so we can stay on the track and on the trail as we pursue this Race to Social Justice. Thank you, everybody, and thank you to our guests. All right. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Visit thedreamrecordingstudio.com for more info.